0: Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, so we have with us today, Emily Oster, economist and author of Expecting Better and "Creep Creepsheet. Um, Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so with all these interviews, we're starting by going back in time and trying to think about what we know when so in March tell me about how you're like processing the information that was coming out from Italy from Europe at that point in time in March and how did you think about the types of decision making that was taking place at that early early in the in the pandemic
1: yeah I mean I it's hard to even think back to that it was like it was like infinity time ago um, and I think that it, it partly like what I recall from that time was just the feeling of like okay this is gonna like this gonna be over soon like we're gonna like, we'll get through this and then it will be, it will be over in it's sort of simultaneously that, and also this like incredible fear, you know, particularly the stuff that came out of, it was coming out of Italy and some of what was coming out of New York felt sort of like apocalyptic, right? So some of the stuff, some of the sort of health stuff in Italy felt really like, like hard to, hard to sort of contemplate. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was this sort of like lockdown piece of it, the kind of personal life piece of it, which felt more manageable at the beginning because it felt somehow time limited, even though now when I think about it, like, I don't know how I would have thought that that was time limited, but it felt like, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to, you know, make some bread and hang out with the kids and learn a little extra math. And then we'll all be back in school. And I think it was sort of like a slow process of realizing, okay, it's actually going to be a pretty long time before we're kind of back to anything that looks like normal
0: but were, were there any particular set of evidence that you're looking or any models or you know as, as sort of professionally, did you take any interest professionally on it right away when the information was coming out and, and and decision makers were saying oh we need to lock down for example
1: yeah so i started very early on working with the state and doing a lot of uh work with their with their modeling team so sort of thinking about these these models and i i, I will say very quickly I kind of realize that these epidemiological models are um, are like I'm very sensitive, um, right? Yeah, and bad. so
0: you you can say bad. I, I can say bad here. Yeah, I, I'll say it. you they, don't have. I to. Mean, <laughs> they, you
1: know, let's just say they're sensitive. They're sensitive, and so you know there would be sort of this like whiplash between like there are going to be two million deaths, and then the next you would be like there's going to be sixty thousand deaths, and now there's gonna, like and and some and you sort of realize, of course, when you think about it, why that's true of these models because they have this exponential growth feature, and so relatively small changes early on lead to sort of very large changes later and and so i was working a lot with the state looking at those models thinking about what the models were were saying but it was um it was uh daunting and kind of uh difficult to get our heads to get our heads around it i guess
0: and and but were you were you sort of um so when looking at that, right, and I think we had a very similar experience here. I was involved early on with some decision makers locally here, and you know, when when some epidemiologists show up to the mayor, to the tra- to the county, or to the governor, and say, "Listen, if we don't do something right now, um, 18,000 hospitalizations are going to take place in in Austin, Texas." Well, that didn't happen in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like you know, retrospect, right? There was like a but it, but it was like a hugely scary moment at that point in time, and then people react and go into lockdown mode, right? Um, but, and one thing that I felt, I felt that was not really front and center in the discussion, is something that you spent a lot of time talking about and writing about, which is the trade offs that you're facing. Um, at that point, it seemed it seemed that no matter what we need to do this, regardless of the price that we're paying for it. And, and I can understand from the two sort of like temporary, maybe a two week period or something like that. Right. But I don't think there was enough thinking through the, well, would you do it if it was a six months lockdown? Was that any yeah. kind of calculation that you saw taking place in that sense?
1: Yeah, I did. not I mean, I think early on in that period there was so much push of just like lockdown, 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 lockdown. Um, which again, I think there were there were good reasons to do some. There are good reasons to do some to do some lockdowns. I think part of what, um, but I think you're you're right that there was a sort of short term short termism of of this um, and kind of we conveyed to people we're going to lock down until we can like fix the hospitals until we can like get enough hospital, hospital beds that's so we can like, be ready right, if there's right. like, you know, whatever. And, but then th- that's that sort of morphed into like, we're going to lock down until there's not going to be any more coronavirus, which I think it was like, not really realistic. And then you get people who push way back in the other direction. Right. And so I sort of worry a little bit that we got into a situation where we were kind of like asking people to do something they couldn't really sustain for very long. Like, Locking down for two weeks, for a month, I think is, is more feasible, you know, doing this for six months is not something that like people are really equipped to, to do in this in the face of this, they're just not really equipped to do that. Right. Um, and so then you, you kind of lost, by, by having such extreme things, you lost the opportunity to give a more nuanced message of like, you know, actually you do need to wear a mask and wash your hands. And some of those smaller steps, if we had pushed those more at the beginning, we might have had an easier time getting people to adopt them. So I, I think there was a little bit of a balance there that maybe was not especially well thought through in the first moments.
0: And I, I remember, I think one of, one of the first things I read from you during that time was exactly making that point, right? Making the point that, and it's not something that, that is unique. It's, it's only you know about it. That's something that behavior economists know about it, right? How, how to convey a message in a way that you will get more buy-in as opposed to the sort of uniform thing that seem to be maybe too arbitrary and then to not just doable. So if if I can, if I cannot do this, this, the, do, you know, if that's the only solution, let's not do anything type thing, right?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. That sort of people got into a place where it was like, well, if I can't stay in my house for the next two years, like I might as well just go out and like have a party. And it's like, well, no, like there's this sort of intermediate thing, but we somehow like fail to get people to, we failed in that in conveying that.
0: I think. So was there anything in particular in terms of the sort of uh, uh, potential cost they were facing? Once you realize that, that it looked like the, the lockdowns are not going to be a one, one, one month, it would be something that, you know, when, when politicians primarily start almost like talking in terms of, yeah, we need to crush the virus now, we need to, to think about lockdowns as not flattening the curve, but rather suppression, right, try to yeah. suppress the virus from existence. And we had too much community spread already at that point for that to be realistic, right? um, then, then were there particular costs that you were uh, worried about things that you, people were not necessarily focusing on that would be, they were like, Oh my God, this is going to be bad in this way, this way, this way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it was, um, I think there were, there were costs to kids that we hadn't sort of like seen at the beginning. Right. And so I think a lot of, um, I think a, a lot of people probably underestimated the cost of the, like not of having kids out of school. Uh, both in a in a learning sense, um, but also in a mental health sense. So I think that the mental health piece is probably the piece that I didn't hear people talking about at the beginning because I think people didn't understand what it was going to be like. and then you sort of saw like just things get kind of worse and worse and I think really for both kids and adults and on older adults in particular, the kind of like mental health, damage of some of this, of some of this isolation is really, um, has been really extreme. And I don't think that we're done. I don't think we're done seeing that, you know, I think that rates of, of depression and, and anxiety and all those things are going to end up being way higher than we um, than, than we had expected. And I think that that's, um, that's something I did not see a lot of discussion. at the beginning.
0: Is there any evidence of that right now already coming up? Do you, do you find any studies that are kind of compiling that information or not?
1: Yeah, I've seen a few things sort of about like rates of, uh, rates of depression, but I haven't seen anything really like comprehensive. Um, You know, I'm wondering what we're going to see about uh, overdoses. So, you know, sort of drug, drug related stuff, um, you know, for some of the same, some of the same reasons.
0: Right. And that's not only isolation, but also like, you know, losing your job is something that contributes to those things a lot too, Right. Um, exactly yeah i remember i remember one of the first days after maybe a month or so of of isolation here we had some friends over to play in the backyard backyard and the kids were so happy it was such a like a real you know there was one particular kid that that my my two-year-old never met before and he was so excited about just having another kid to play with and and seeing that was
1: wow. yeah (laughs) my kids went to camp like two three two and a half weeks ago it was like the first like time maybe three weeks ago like the first time that they had like been in a child and i like I had understood that they missed seeing other, other kids, but the, the like difference in the end, at the end of like two days in just everybody's mood and the ability, it was just like, I mean, it, and it wasn't just like the work time. It was sort of that like everybody at the end of the day had like something different that they had done to talk about. And, um and I, I don't think we had really appreciated how much the kids had been, had been sort of suffering, even though like, of course, like they're very lucky and we're all you know, like, we're in a very lucky circumstance, but they right. kind of need yeah. other kids.
0: So let's fast forward to, to to where we are now in terms of, of, of what we know and how different the information is from then. I think you know a lot of primarily the thing that we know now that we didn't know then was how heterogeneous the disease is for in terms of risks for different different populations, right? And 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 for us is something that you was know, very very low probability of, of something real bad happening, where for some groups is very high probability. Um, so you know, given that I think that the the original data points pointing to not data points or, or projections pointing to like millions of deaths, we're kind of like negating that and rejecting those hypotheses. Now, I think to, to some extent, um, how do you see this moving forward in terms of policy or or? I'm,
1: I am Staying not sure. On? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that there's um, there's like also a sort of huge disconnect across space in how people are in how people are thinking about this. Um, so, you know, like there are definitely places like in like in even even places that have fairly high rates, like in Texas, where I think people are sort of like, okay, well, let's just like move on. And, you know, yes, it's too bad that we have so many coronavirus cases. But we're still going to like open our schools and we're going to, and then I think that there are places um, like, you know, New York and California and, and where I live, where like, even in the face of much lower risk, the the choices that people are making are much more conservative. And so, you know, I'm not sure where I see all of that, um, all of that going. And I think it's also been hard to kind of it, the the thing you said about heterogeneous impacts is it's been very difficult for people to, to think about. And so we sort of simultaneously, these are like huge numbers in terms of cases. um, But it's hard to translate that into like how, like, like how worried, like how worried should I be, which is a sort of a a thing. I think a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people are struggling with.
0: Let's let's go talk talk about kids. That's something that you did a lot of work, and I should say also that you've been maintaining um, a website with uh, Galit Alter from Harvard, mm-hmm. on compiling a lot of information for about kids, about families, about uh, treatments, and, and, and like basically a lot of evidence, gathering a lot of evidence and making it easy for people to 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 digest that. Um, so give me an overview of how should we be thinking about COVID in relationship to kids. I mean, you mentioned your kids being in camp, so so tell me more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that basically what we know about kids is that their risks are relatively low, um, that, you know, they themselves are both relatively less likely than adults to be infected and the outcomes tend to be, they tend to have fairly mild infection. You know, I'm always cautious to say like that doesn't mean that kids cannot get very sick and doesn't mean that kids cannot die of this. Like we have seen pediatric illness and we have seen pediatric death, but it's just much, much less common um you know relative to sort of broader uh like older people and and the reason partly that that's surprising and that's like notable is with something many respiratory viruses like if you look just something like the flu the groups that you would see would be most effective would be young kids and older people right so if you look at like who dies of the flu in a given year it's kids and and the elderly
0: very young kids right yeah
1: very young kids exactly it's sort of like very young like kids sort of below five kind of kids here it's there's really like very young kids seem to be like basically the lowest risk group. There's almost like a, like a kind of linear that linear, but there's almost just like a monotonic increase um, across uh, across ages. And I think that you know we don't really understand why it is, but it is encouraging about kids. And it means you know when we think about the risks of kids, like it's not that it's zero, but it's much lower than some of the other disease risks that you're taking in like a bad flu season or, or something like that um and so i think that's that's good uh but then when we think about childcare settings of course there's a question of like are kids transmitters and i think the evidence there is a little bit more complicated so you know kids do seem to transmit probably less than adults partly because they don't um have it as much particularly very young kids uh are just not not very efficient transmitters they're rarely the index cases in their households it doesn't mean they can transmit but it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be very common that's encouraging about sort of childcare and. Um, and and schools, but um, but again, you know, kids,
0: kids you do say, get sick. Relatively relatively low relative to, to other groups in the in, in the population, their risk. But can you yeah. can you put it in a in a way that that relative to to other things that we do, how would you rate um, um, the risk of you know? Is there a, like a, an analogy you can make between the risk of a kid dying of coronavirus relative to um, to other you things? can that look we at
1: you can the look epidemic. at something you know early on in the epidemic i looked at like you know flu deaths and covid deaths in the last you know and the and the flu deaths are i don't know 10 times 15 times as high um as as a covid deaths even in the sort of height of height of the epidemic early on which, so, which was an
0: incredibly mild flu season this one right
1: it was not a it was not a very significant flu season right, yeah right. so in a you know relative to a serious flu season that would be very very different so the, the, i mean this is the, we're talking about very very small numbers you know right very small numbers.
0: Yeah, and that's something that's very hard for people to digest, right? And especially when they see the sort of uh, ap- still apocalyptic news around them, it's hard for them to see. Yeah, I think
1: it just makes it really like, you know, I, one thing I sometimes tell people is like, if every time some, a kid drowned in a pool, you had the kind of coverage that you have when a kid is seriously ill from, from COVID, like you would never take your kid anywhere near a pool. Right. Um, and I think there is this kind of salience piece and it came up early on. People are talking about like this multi, multi symptom, um, multi symptom inflammatory syndrome, which is sort of like a word for the kind of
0: the Kawasaki, serious yeah. illness.
1: Yeah. Kawasaki, like, like illness. And, you know, people are talking about that in New York, it was like, there's a hundred people who might have this. It was like, you know, like 20% of the kids that were testing in New York have antibodies suggesting that like the number of kids who had this is very, very big. And so sometimes I just tell people like, remember like these places are really big. Like the denominators are really, really large. And so hundred may seem like a big number to you until you realize that the base rate is, you know, half a million and then it doesn't really seem like that big
0: enough. Right, right. I, th- I think that uh, the, the total number of kids that die in New York was 13 i
1: don't that. think it was that
0: high but yes it's certainly not higher than that yeah, but up to
1: 17 years old so sorry yep. a
0: big difference between 0 to 10 and 10 to 17. Yeah. most yes. of them from the 10 to 17 years old uh, uh, yeah. so that's another question a question that follow up to that when it, 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 there's a lot of conversations about and we can talk more about schools in a second but um and they tend to bundle together k to 12. uh would you make a diff- distinction between what we know about let's say even pre-k kids K through five, elementary school kids and then, and then older kids?
1: Yeah, I would make a distinction in, in, two, in two really important dimensions. So one is just the risk of, of illness. So it seems like, you know, teenagers particularly look kind of a little bit more like adults or at least are higher risk than um, than, very young, than very young kids. So if you had to say, like, what's the safest kind of group to have interacting with each other, it's, it's very, you know, the younger a kid, the better effectively. Um, but then the other thing is when we think about things like schools or or interactions and we ask like how efficiently can we replicate the experience uh, of that like these, you know, the sort of things you need to learn with a 14 year old on the computer versus like a five year old on the computer. Those are really different. Right. So like online learning, it's not great. I mean, you and I both teach like adults basically. And, you know, it's not as good teaching college kids on Zoom. Is, it's not great. But they are learning, you know, they are learning something. They are able to sit in front of their computer and Zoom and they're able to do worksheets and they're used to working on a computer and they can type um, and they can talk to their friends on the phone or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Double uh, but, you know, it happens. exactly. But my five-year-old can't really do that. Right. And so and, you know, it's really hard to teach a five-year-old to read on, on Zoom. Uh, it's just really hard to do that. Uh, and so I think that we, we sort of I would draw a distinction between if I, you ask me, like, what's the most important set of people to get back into the classroom in person? It's little kids.
0: Elementary school. Elementary school, right. So, the a condition on. on so, so, there's three things that I think there's a lot of worry about right now uh, when it comes to, to schools and in the rhetoric that you hear, uh, which, by the way, you mentioned taxes opening schools. We're not actually. So, we just heard from um, um, there's a big push from our teachers not to open schools. And, and I think we're going to be at least online for the first half of the semester, um, which is, you know, and, and at the same time, also not only public schools, but the, there was a cities are, are putting putting constraints for private schools and charter schools to open as well. So I think
1: that's interesting. Yeah. That, Cause I heard from people who are, Oh, who have private private schools in Houston that said like we're opening normally.
0: Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but they just, just this week, they started, they started sending, sending, mm-hmm. you know, basically dict, uh, uh, directives that they are not allowed. So there's some lawsuits coming up. This is not decided by any means, but, but that's this discussion. And I think when you hear the discussion, there's three pieces that people tend to point out. One is risk to kids. And I think that's the one that, that the data is just overwhelming. It's overwhelming that, we shouldn't worry about that. There's, you know, again, I have a pool in my house and I shouldn't have a, I, you know, if I have a pool in my house and I don't send my kids to school, I'm being completely irrational. Yeah, that's
1: right? not consistent. Yes,
0: Yeah, exactly. Inconsistent. And, and, and the other piece is, well, you know, but there's the teachers and the custodians and the other people that they work in school and then you know, they're putting them at risk is that fair to them. You talked about the transmission aspect, the fact that kids are are much lower vectors uh, that they transmit, but they transmit at a much high, much lower rate than 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 other individuals. Um, and I think I don't know how do you think about that. How do you think about the teachers and custodians and other people that you know work in that environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it is it um, it it's, is a very tricky thing to to talk about. So I think we could talk about it in terms of data, and we could say like sort of let's look at places like like Europe, which, you know, has a lot of differences and whatever, but like places like, like in Sweden, they kept schools open. And actually they had like a pretty, like, they didn't have like a great epidemic experience overall in Sweden. But when you look at like hospital, they, they can, you can match like occupation to hospitalization rates. So you can actually look at like whether teachers are more likely to be, you know, COVID cases than other jobs. Like what's a risky job and teacher is not a risky job. So, so it's not that no teachers get, get COVID in Sweden. But they're not more likely than the general population of just like people with like random jobs. Unlike, say, bus drivers. A so bus driver is like a super risky job. OK, you can kind of see why that would why that would be. So, you know, it does suggest that this isn't like an especially high risk, um, high risk occupation. Of course, I think there's a, re- you know, people say, well, like, why should I have to, you know, why should people have, why should teachers have to go back to school and put themselves at, um, you know, put themselves at risk? It's not fair to ask people to do that. It's like a little bit of a funny thing to say because, of course, like you could ask the same question about like, people working in grocery stores. Like, why? Yes. Like, why do we ask, the, you know, or people who like, heard, I mean, doctors is one thing. But like, you know, it, it's not like there are no other jobs, which where you have to go. Otherwise, you are not working. I mean, of course, it's, it's not indentured servitude. Like, if you don't right. want to, do to go teach, you don't have to go teach. But I think that, that so I think that there's a little bit of a, of a, of a sort of tension of attention there. I do think that that there are some very legitimate complaints on the teacher side, which is that they're not being provided with the kinds of like protections sure. that they that they need, right? So it's, it's one thing to say, you know, look, you can wear a mask, your students will wear a mask, we're going to track their symptoms, we're going to kind of do everything we can, but we expect you to come back to work. There's a difference between that and saying like, you have to come back to work and we're not going to provide any support and, you know, good luck with, with that. I think that's not really fair. And that wouldn't be consistent with like being a cashier at Whole Foods where they put up the plexiglass and they have you wear a mask and they make the customers wear a mask. I mean, I think that's not an unreasonable comparison. Right.
0: Um, yeah, and I, I think that we, we decided to use this term of uh, some business being essential versus not, which I think is an incredibly dangerous thing for, you know, a central government to decide what's essential, what's not. But if you're going to do that, schools, I would yeah, claim-
1: Yeah, seems essential, right? Seems yeah. essential to me. Seems essential.
0: <laughs> so. <laughs> So yeah, so I hope they will come in. Yeah, but you make a good point of, of I think the lack of, of preparedness in, in a lot of school districts. But, but, uh, but in that sense, do you, places that let's say will open, uh, do you have any information on the types of things that seem to be really important to, to, to do? I, I'm, I'm, so I, I absolutely agree with you that yes, the kids are wearing masks. If the kids are somehow um, protected from the, from the teachers, I think somehow staying some sort of social distance from teachers is something that seems to make, make some sense. But I think the idea of trying to spread kids around six feet away inside of the classroom seems a little, a little crazy to me, um, um, given what we know about their transmissions and their risk. And I don't know how do you think about yeah. that?
1: I mean, I think it's just not realistic, right? So I think we have to sort of there's like a kind of combination of like what is safe and what is and what is like realistic to expect um, people to kids, you know, kids to to do. Um, And I think there are some things which are real, like which we can do, which are realistic, like which are like wash your hands more, wear masks, you know, do some symptom tracking, like take kids' temperatures, like don't have sick, you know, tell people they can't take their their sick kids to school. So there are some sort of external things. I think when we start and, and, you know, keeping kids in smaller pods so they're not interacting with a million different people, which will make it easier to like contact trace later if somebody does get sick. So there are some things like that. Regulating precisely how the kids interact with each other in the classroom, I think, is just very, very difficult to imagine doing. Um, And I don't—I mean, just like I don't think the evidence would suggest that that is very that that is necessary to do. But I also think it's impossible, right? And so I think there's like some frontier of like what is effective and what could you do, and we need to sort of figure out how to be on that frontier with these different things. Like, what are the things that we can do that are effective, and we got to kind of give on some of these some of these things that are just impossible.
0: So, so. You know, I don't want to put you in the spot, but would you say that given then what we know and the evidence and and what we are in the epidemic, um, I guess the third thing that I didn't mention is that the one worry is that well, the the the, the impact that that having schools open have on the progression of the epidemic. That's the other thing that, that you want. One could think about schools as being a compartment in those models, right? And and how do they lead to sort of the progression of like the exponential growth, so on and so forth. I think then again, there the evidence is not, well, there's not a lot of evidence. What we have is really just like some guessing. And from what we saw in Sweden, for example, and some other places that had schools open earlier, it doesn't seem to contribute so much for that, that spread, right? Hey,
1: That's uh, correct. Yep.
0: Putting all that together um, would be your sort of assessment that the, the, the cost benefit is such that we should be opening schools fully on time this, this fall. Elementary, I- let's separate them. Elementary or or. or, or- <laughs> And I know, I know, and I know you. You, 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 when you, you know, yeah. the writing, you try to say, well, let me empower people with the information, let them make the decision. I don't want to make the decision for them. But we are in a situation where states, you know, are making those decisions for us, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if I were if I were the the decider, um, that in you know in states with uh, with kind of under like under control epidemics. Um, and I mean not, you know, zero cases, but I also mean not like, you know, more like not a positivity rate of 10% and like, you know, really like increasing cases, but places like the Northeast, yeah, I would open schools on time, um, a pretty, like pretty normally. Um, that would be my, I mean, I am just really like, I was reading something the other day in the journal with like, was sort of like an anecdotal, an anecdotal, like a story about a woman, single mom with two kids and like the kind of like inequality and learning losses that are going to be associated with this are going to be felt forever. Um, and, you know, I understand the view that if even one kid, you know, dies of the coronavirus, it will be too costly. But I think that that is not consistent with the other risk choices that we're, that we're, that we're yeah. making. And I think we really need to think about the costs on the, on the other side. So I guess if I were the decider, maybe that's what I do.
0: So when you mentioned the, oh, in some places where things are, 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 I'd like to understand a little bit better that. So the fact that in a place where the epidemic might be, might be raging with higher rates of, of positivity around, why would that be then the, the, the case for you to say that, well, you know, in this situation, I would, I would hope to, to, for schools to be closed.
1: Partly optics, actually. So part of it is that even if you thought, which I probably do, that actually opening schools wouldn't necessarily make things much worse or wouldn't make things worse. When you open schools, some people at the schools will have, will have COVID because like some people just like out in the world have, have COVID. And I'm not sure that we're really equipped to process that information appropriately. And so I worry that if we open, this is just like a practical concern. Like if we open schools and then the first thing that happens is the first week, a bunch of people who work in the schools, go to the schools, have COVID, then we will just shut everything down and then it will be shut down every place. Right. So, so I think you know, some of this is about kind of setting, setting expectations, and there are definitely people who are more bullish than I am, who would say basically, because we don't think this will make things worse, like, let's just open all the schools and just like, let it, let it go. And I kind of, I can see that argument. I think that the, the sort of practical aspects of that seem really hard to me.
0: So you mentioned the the differential learning and how that's going to have, you know, it's it's kind of like almost obvious for us to expect is that that the kids that are more fluent are going to be able to handle this and manage this transition whether they were doing it online or in ways that are just easier than than other kids and the gap of achievement is going to just be widened during this during this crisis. Uh, another thing that you mentioned is 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 how parents are going to handle this and I think uh, do you do you worry at all about the dispar- desperate impact that we're going to see between men and women in terms of participation labor force and so on? as a result of this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you will see a ton of women, particularly actually like higher income, better educated women who are just going to drop out of the labor force. Um, and, you know, there are going to be some like very significant gains lost. I mean, I think you met this in the context of academia where, you know, we have like a bunch of people on the tenure track and like some of them are women and they have little kids and some of them are men and they have little kids. And the women who have little kids are home with their kids and they're doing the homeschooling and they're, you know, not writing papers at the same at the same rate. And we're going to be seeing that in five years when we're looking at tenure cases. Um, there's just no way around it. Uh, and I am, yeah, I'm kind of and
0: worried the, about and the thing, And the thing that the policy, at least my university has, and I, I'm assuming yours has something similar, is that they delay everybody tenure's clock. Yeah, uh, us too. And again, right, that actually we know from some research that shows that that actually... Dispro- dis- it
1: makes it worse. It makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it makes it <laughs> worse.
0: It's Everything really like
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same way I feel about like the childbirth. It's clock extensions. It's like, oh let's be fair and give everyone the same thing. Like, so no, do you know where the baby comes out of? Like, do you know who's who's like just like to be totally clear, do you understand how these are how not this the same works. experiences? Like, <laughs> right, right. My time right. investment is a lot more significant. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
0: Uh, but yeah, it's it's it, it's it's unbelievable. But but and that those are the most liberal places in the world, right? University. right?
1: No, exactly. These are the places most concerned with the quality. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're like too concerned.
0: So let's talk about vaccines for a second. Uh, you write a lot about vaccines and how how that's like the one situation where it's like it's overwhelming evidence that yes, you should vaccinate your kids, and yet we have a very large number of people. And that's not COVID related, right? Before COVID, yeah. uh, that, that still are reluctant to vaccine, uh, taking vaccines are reluctant because they think there's risks of this, risks of that, and so on and so forth. Um, so here we are, you know, in a situation where there are policymakers and academics that would advocate that we should stay locked down. This is so severe that we should stay locked down until a vaccine comes up. And then let's say miraculously, in three months time, a vaccine comes up.
1: And then people will take it
0: right? From what you know, from what you observe and in, 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 in catalog in terms of evidence through the years looking at this. So how do we, how do you think about like how, how, how quickly people will adopt and how the sort of like safety, because it's, we're not going to have a lot of data on the safety of it. It's going to be yeah, like, I mean, that isn't about it, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think we will see some, you know, we will see take up because people will like want to have the vaccine. And then we will see some people who don't, you know, who who kind of don't want to have the vaccine. I think the thing the vaccine will buy us the same way it buy, the same thing it buys us in the flu or the measles is the, the kind of like it's on you if you don't do it, which I actually think will help a lot with some re, like some of the reopening stuff. I think part of what is tricky right now about some of the teacher stuff and so on is like people are like, well, you're put, you know, there's nothing that you can do and you're putting me in harm's way. If the if it's like, well, there's a vaccine, but you refuse to take it. I think that it's people are going to feel much different, much different about that. So I think even the existence of the vaccine will uh, will help with some will help with some of that, even if people don't want to take it, which some people for sure won't, I mean, obviously, particularly if it's a Moderna vaccine and people like realize that it's a totally different technology that we've never used for a vaccine before.
0: Right. <laughs> don't say it. Don't,
1: don't put that it. on. Don't put that on. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Decision making. Right? Let's think about decision making again. Um, one of the the, the the arguments that I hear a lot uh, is that well we just don't know enough about this, and and for example there's like people that worry about potential long term consequences of it or or you mentioned the Kawasaki thing like you oh, see there's this other thing that can happen and 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 so there's a lot of like um, uh, unknown unknowns uh, associated with what we have in front of us with this with this new disease and and because again I think if if we didn't have a, a system where I don't know I think in other times. This just would be like another flu season. It will be bad. People would be annoyed. Some people would die and we move on with our lives. But I think the information that we have generated like a, a degree of panic and thinking that, 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 that creates a lot of uh, overreaction to it. But, but these the, the, unknown unknowns has generated a lot of minimax thinking. I think of, mm-hmm. of decision making, thinking about the worst case scenario. Well, if, I don't know if something could be bad. Therefore, I'm not going to do it, period. And that's like not how we tend to, to think about decision making. We try to really try, you know, we think about expectations, not necessarily uh, min and max decision making. Do you, again, in your work, you, you work, look a lot about how people think about decision making in race associated with their kids and, and, and family decisions they make. Um, and that kind of thinking tends to take place in that space as well. Mm. Do you find a big difference between what we're living now? How this taking place in, in people's minds versus versus that?
1: I think, you know, to to some extent, I mean, I think part of there is this issue of salience, which comes up to me all the time, like this is just so in your face all the time, that I think it is very difficult for people to, um, to kind of step back and think and like, almost some of what's been some of what our like risk decision making is benefiting from is the fact that we're just not thinking about these risks all the time. And so you know, you are sometimes you take a step back to think about these risks, but then you realize, okay, well, I'm not like, I'm not like constantly obsessing about pools. Um, and I think here we really are sort of constantly obsessing about this um, and reading about it all the time and media is not super helpful because the media is like really focused on anecdotes um, and really focused on numerators and quotes on case counts. And people sort of see these numbers and like the numbers are big and, you know, or they're small, but they seem big or they're more than one or whatever it is. Um, and I think that that's, that's making it very difficult for people to kind of conceptualize the decision making correctly. Um, and it, it puts the kind of worst case scenario, the, in your mind, so like, so front of mind that it is hard to kind of move it to the back of your mind, which right. you need to.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and so changing gears a little bit, actually, let me go back to one thing. We talked a lot about K through 12 and uh, just to make sure that I, that I know of some friends that would like to hear that, um, daycares, do you, what, what's your, but what, what are the evidence? What are we, you know, is, do we think differently at all? And you already mentioned that the, the, the rate, the, the sort of uh, risk for kids at, at that younger age seems to be even lower. Uh, yeah. And so even less worry about daycares anymore about K through 12.
1: Yeah, I, I'm less worried about daycare. And the part because daycares are also much smaller. So like the sort of like, like most of the way that we are operating like daycare, childcare, little kid childcare centers is like well, um, is well suited to, uh, is well suited to having these small pods and doing things that are uh, and doing things that are like you know seem seem safe in addition to the kids being lower risk.
0: Right, right. Uh, okay so now the, the, the other thing I want to ask now is is about it seems that there's like a, there's a politicization going on with whether you want schools open or not. It seems that you are one side of the aisle or not. And and um, it's hard to understand exactly why there's yet another thing that falls into a partisan divide. Jesse, uh, yeah. Jesse, some of these questions, I think he, he probably right. has, he has to come in to get his sweatshirt in a
1: minute, because like, <laughs> we actually have to go hiking in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, so you can um, ask him
0: but, but, but uh, um, you know, I think it, that's a question that Richard wanted me to ask you, is the question of, of like, he's more on the a side of, like, let's try to be reasonable about this, have nuanced decision making, and not necessarily, like, blanket decisions of, like, everything closed, school closes, or everything um and he's afraid that, that that makes him into you know not afraid but he's being treated as like, oh my god it must be a trump support as a result uh and, and that i think creates like a, a void in the conversation if if all of a sudden you think that i'm saying that schools should should open because i support the president it's like completely that's a you know a, it's a lightning rod and and do, do you get that at all that by you you know tending yeah. to be in the direction of
1: <laughs> no it's super i mean it's it's sort of crazy because there's like this like unholy alliance of like the like the Trump supporters and then like the super lefty people who are caring about like inequality and like inequality and learning outcomes, like somehow we're like on the same side, even though it's like not for the same, like not for the same reasons. Um, but I think it has gotten it's like the whole thing has gotten sort of very politicized and it feels like there's not a lot of space for balance.
0: Yeah. And and anything that 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 you see positive in that direction in terms of any particular leadership yeah. that they are showing, you know, good. Nope. Ideas. i have not seen any
1: particular leadership on this sorry
0: yeah yeah um i guess i ask everything that, that I, I wanted to ask this is this is great um awesome thank you so much
1: all right yeah nice um, to see you
0: and yeah great I'm to see you and, and keep up take, the, the thanks for the, putting it together for everybody
1: nice to see right. you i'll talk to you right. soon bye
0: thanks for listening to policy at McCombs.